This episode of Race Brain Podcast is brought to you by Resolute Coffee. I've been working with Resolute Coffee for some time now, and I got to tell you, the product just keeps getting better and better. They're very dedicated to their craft. You know why? Because they're part of this community. They know what hard work and determination will get you. So the founder puts a lot of energy into this craft. And if you can drink nice coffee, you might as well support somebody that's within the community. My personal favorites are the Aponte Honey. That's has a washed processing. So it's a little bit cleaner, a little bit more familiar, a little bit more of approachable cup of coffee, very quality. If you like something a little bit more adventurous, I like the Ethiopian natural. It's going to give you a little bit more fruit, a little funkiness. It's a little bit less predictable, a little bit more of an adventure in the cup for your mornings, if that's what you like. RR20 at checkout for 20% off of your order. Resolute Coffee, crush shit daily. All right. Hello. What's going on? Armar Training Podcast. My name is Rich Ryan. Just one R here today. Gave the rest of the crew the weekend off because I'm the boss. Just kidding. We're a mate. We're a big time team. But a lot of stuff going on with the RMR crew. Just a lot of personal stuff happening. We'll talk about that a little bit more in detail when we have the whole squad around, I'm sure. But mostly we got we got a big race coming up. You know, we got a race happening out in Austria. Uh, it's happening Friday, uh, the first weekend in fr- the first Friday in February. That is the ninth. Meg Jacoby, Ryan Kent, myself will all be there on site racing in the third major for this High Rock season. Meg and Ryan are looking to continue their undefeated streaks in, within majors, and your boys is looking for that qualifier. You know, I'm just like, I'm going to go out there and mix it up. Get that qualifier for us. We got DC right after. So two big races coming up in the next month or so. So we're gonna have a lot of fun stuff talking about when it, when we were looking at like pre post race uh, preparation and recovery and, and some of the takeaways that we have there. We'll make sure to bring the podcast stuff out to Vienna so we can get some live episodes in or in person, not necessarily live. Which I feel like are very valuable. I like those very much. <laughs> they sound great. It's just much more of an easier flow. The remote world is one that we live in, but in person, the, the it's just better. It's just better. So we'll have a couple of those conversations for you next week for sure. Make sure to send some love to Kent and Meg for the upcoming week or so. So that's that on the personal side of things, what we got going on here at RMR Training. Today, we're going solo podcast. I had some people reach out uh about the little bit of a conversation where I was having with Meg last week regarding uh, resting blood glucose. So I want to touch on that a little bit, basically dive into that a little bit deeper. Some of the things that I've been learning about, some of the things that I've known over the course of my time training and really what that means. And if it's something to be con- uh, concerned about, how that could relate to anybody else who is training for these type of events on the nutrition side of things. This is something we're going to be like, I'm going to be dipping my toes a little bit further into kind of like the medical uh, side of things, which I am not a doctor. I'm not a registered dietitian. I don't have any of that type of training. This is just some independent research that I've done on my own. So it's not going to be super deep from that perspective, but just some of the strategies that I'm personally going to put into place and, and really what that all, all kind of means for training and 
just lifestyle in general. Then we're going to talk about we, me and you, the listener. We're just going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about heart rate training for high rocks, what that is, how that works. Is it the same as it, as it is for, for running, cycling, swimming, or, or how do we use it? How do we use this, this tool and how much weight should we really put on it um, for high rocks itself? Then maybe some tips at the end, depending on if we have enough time, you and I, but we're definitely going to start with the blood sugar marker. So last episode, I was talking with Meg about a um, a marker that I got done um, working with this company called Blokes. It has been a fan- fantastic experience so far. Basically, they uh, drew um, blood like how we typically would do at the doctor, and then they had a registered dietitian kind of walk me through what the results are looking like. And one of the first things that they do measure is the resting blood glucose. So basically how much uh, sugar is within your blood at any given time. And this was fasted, right? So these are going to, so your blood sugar is going to undulate based off of the food you eat and, and insulin response that you're receiving. So at any given time, it's going to be different. I've also spent some time wearing a continuous, uh, glucose, um, a CGM, uh, meter, CGM meter, uh, and that was that was pretty illuminating as well. So I'm going to refer to that at the same time. And when I was wearing the CGM, I, I did see on the app that it was connected to. I used this uh, um, program called Levels. Uh, they It's more for wellness, not necessarily specifically for athletes, but it's available in the United States. The one that's available internationally is called Super Sapiens, and that's specifically designed more for athletes. Uh, I would be interested in trying that out and seeing what that feedback is on there. But with this... Uh, the software piece called Levels, this uh, company providing this um, glucose kind of measurement, it was it was still illuminating, right? And I I did know that my resting glucose was right around ninety at any time, and it would spike or dip, uh, dip mostly in the eve, like during sleep, and it would spike, of course, after uh, after meals. So I was aware of kind of where my resting glucose would be, but looking at it from a medical perspective, 90 is on the higher end of okay, of good, right? When you start getting to 100, uh, 115, if your blood glucose is at an all time, then then you really are playing around with being uh, pre, pre-diabetic. And we want to make sure that we're not going there just so we're not becoming insulin resistant so that our cells are not uh, aren't becoming resistant to insulin, which will help clear blood sugar from our our bloodstream, which can be toxic, right? If you are a type one diabetic, you know this well, you don't have anything that regulates it on either end, right? So if it starts to dip, you have to eat to get it back up. But then if you eat too much, you need to like inject insulin to level it back down. So it can kind of hover in that middle spot. They have big time dips, but most people, they will self-regulate based off of the pancreas uh, getting the signal to release insulin. But if you have too much blood sugar too often, you can become insulin resistant is what we call it, or insulin, insulin intolerant. And then you just need more and more insulin. And then eventually you might need exogenous insulin um, to help clear the the toxicity of the, the sugar in your blood. Most so... 
as athletes, especially in this area, a high carbohydrate diet is going to be a little bit more optimal. We're doing long bouts of work for sure, but they're also intense, right? It's like 60, 70 minute. Well, if we're talking about DECA and high rocks, you know, 30 to 90 minutes of hard work and interspersed within the running, there is uh, stations where you are needing to work at an extremely high rate. And if you're going to work at that rate, uh, carbohydrates are going to burn much faster. Um, you can uh, use fat as fuel, but your work rate has to be way lower because um, it is a slower process. So carbohydrates are is going to be the preferred fuel source for these type of events. So that to me, when I'm looking at this and I was going through the blood, uh, like these blood markers, I was like, yes, I eat a lot of carbohydrates. That is how I get a lot of my uh, caloric intake. And it was broken down from a macro standpoint, probably about 60% of my total uh, caloric intake is from uh, carbohydrates, which is on the higher end. But I think for this sport, that's what makes sense. And the byproduct of that is this higher blood sugar, right? So the good news is that it is reversible. It's reversible through diet and exercise. A lot of times when you start getting into that type two um, diabetic conversation, it is something that can be reduced or reversed through this. So like if I decided I was not going to compete any longer, I would simply just eat less carbohydrates. I wouldn't need the carbohydrates as much. And this number would probably come down. That's not necessarily an option right now. You know, like for, for what we're doing in this sport and for what I'm trying to accomplish here, taking down the carbohydrates. So to adjust this blood marker, it's just not in the cards, you know, like it's just a kind of a byproduct of where we're at. And that's something to always keep in mind when we're talking about fitness versus wellness. This is a wellness marker, how, and that's not always in line with fitness. What we're doing is we're, what I'm doing is I'm trying to optimize what I could do on this race course. And that is going to not necessarily be what is the best thing for my long-term health, right? Like I'm going to be in a better spot after because of the habits that I've put up or just how, uh, like how resilient my body will be from this training, but to train at the highest end it's not about being, being as well as possible. It's extreme. There's not balance here. And that's something that I, I've, I've come to grips with and I'm okay with that right now. And it's not something that I believe won't be, will be an issue lifelong. I could be wrong. You know, it could be just very myopic in this moment and just thinking that I'm going to be able to reverse this, or this is not gonna have long-term damage, how that's going to, I'm more concerned about, you know, what's going to be wrong with like my tendons and muscle tissue and and like bones and everything like that for the most part this is a positive but again we're balancing that and almost we're not balancing that i should say we're towing the line we're towing the line of what is good for us long term and what's going to be best for us on that race course and right now i'm concerned more about what's going to be best for me on the race course so what should I, what do we do about this? So there's a couple of strategies that we can do about this blood sugar to make sure that it doesn't continue in a, a upward trajectory. Because as we, as for me, as I continue to train harder, one of the first places I go to make sure that I'm recovering well are my macronutrients and, and raising those up as my intensity and, and my volume goes up as well. That's the first 
thing that I do is I eat more. And generally, it's carbohydrates that I, that I will kind of lean on because that's what I'm using the most of during training. And also, carbohydrates are, all, are, are protein sparing. So you will use carbohydrates before you will use uh, um, glycogenesis to, tr- to change your protein into glucose and that's going to strip away muscle mass so that's even like that will be happen before you even use fat as fuel right fat as fuel is great if you're just going to go out for a long run if you're an ultra runner if you're just walking around and that's just like what you want to do like then it's great but for training hard it's still carbohydrates then it's actually protein so eating more carbohydrates is going to spare your muscle mass so for a bunch of reasons i lean on carbohydrates here so one thing that can happen with that we can do to chew, not necessarily reduce the amount of blood sugar that's going to enter the stream, but reduce the speed in which it enters there. So you're not needing this influx of, of insulin to clear it. Protein consumption with all meals is something that will help slow that process. Uh, just eating, having protein in your system takes a little, little bit longer for that um, blood sugar to reach Uh, your system. So eating carbohydrates with every meal is a way to kind of slow that down. And having, I recommend about 30 grams of protein per meal. And you could also eat that protein before you eat the carbohydrate. And that will also help really kind of slow things down. I don't know for sure. But to me, I would think that the source of protein would also be a factor in the speed in which um, your body's going to digest it. Things like whey protein, uh, egg protein, those things, they, they, they absorb pretty quickly. So that might be less optimal for, uh, so if like, you're like, all right, I'm just gonna have a protein shake with my cereal. Like maybe that helps, but it's still not, it's not going to be like the protein powders. They're designed to get into your system quickly. So I wouldn't necessarily think like taking a protein powder is going to help slow down the process of, um, of like getting that blood, getting that sugar to your blood. That's just a thought, but real sources of protein are going to be uh, superior for this. So that would be something that I would recommend doing that I'm going to start doing for all my meals that aren't necessarily like directly around training. And along those lines, because like just if we're taking in a big 30 grams of protein from chicken, an hour before working out, like again, it's a slow process. So it, you're still going to be moving that through your system as you begin your workout less than ideal for a good outcome in your workout. So, but eating protein, eating high levels of protein throughout the day with all your carbohydrates, even before your carbohydrates is a good way to slow that process down along the lines of timing keeping the high carbohydrates and especially the high uh, carbohydrates in high glycemic index carbohydrates around your workouts before and after, and then really be focused on more low GI, lower GI um, foods outside of those workouts. So this is where the nutrition, the nutrient timing comes in. And you could also have a higher dosage of carbohydrates before and after your workouts because you're going to immediately start using them in your workout and it's going to replenish faster. You become more, you're more insulin sensitive after a workout. So if you ever heard of like, there's like this window of gains that was like old school bodybuilding that you want to get, you want to get the, the protein and carbohydrates in you like 30 minutes after, like it's faster to do that, but it's not, um, it will still like, you'll still get 
those nutrients are going to get to where they're going to go no matter what, but it's quicker directly after. So if you have multiple workouts in a day, then, then that's where the timing becomes optimal. But really where it's, it's nice is that you will have, you'll be more insulin sensitive. So, um, you will shuttle that blood sugar out of your system and into like your muscles into your storage, um, probably much quicker and not have to have to sit with that high level of blood sugar in your system throughout the day. So timing the carbohydrates around the workouts is something else that I'm, I'm planning on, on doing here. Intermittent fasting. That's another thing that we've talked about that has been talked about. Uh, that was, that was cold plunge a couple years ago. Now cold plunge is the thing that everybody's like, dude, have you seen what these studies say before, before cold plunge? It was intermittent fasting. All of the cold plunge advocates were intermittent fasting advocates. Mm, maybe not all, 90%, 95%. I don't know. I'll have to find out. I'm going to, I'm going to find this answer out. This is what we need to know. But intermittent fasting, it was this thing that was like this craze and uh, it had all these promises, but what it can do it will uh, give you a little bit more insulin sensitivity and basically just bring your blood sugar down. Again, I don't recommend this for athletes. Um, just because you're going to want to have nutrients in your system to uh, make sure you're getting the most out of your workouts. That's what we're doing here. Intermittent fasting is great, mostly for dudes who want to uh, have an aesthetic that is pleasing to them. Um, it will definitely help you get a little bit leaner, mostly because you're going to put yourself in a caloric deficit and because you're skipping meals. And it's going to be hard to just to, to keep up with that. But if this is a major concern of yours, you can do some intermittent fasting to keep that low. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do more like just having the lower glycemic index foods more prevalent around in the morning and evening. And um, I'm going to consistently eat. I have done intermittent fasting and it's okay. It's great. Again, if it's great, if you want to lose fat, if you, if you have body composition goals, like this is a, that's a strategy that I will deploy if I need to lose a couple of pounds <laughs> straight up, but I would not recommend it most of the time for athletes. And there's some supplementation. This is something that was sent to me by blokes. First time I've really heard of this supplement. It's called berberine and it's like fat. It's a natural supplement found like tree bark. Um, but there was a, some studies that were, that were conducted. Um, not a huge group, about 36 people participants in there. And there was a, uh, placebo group and a group that, um, was supplemented with berberine and the results are pretty crazy on this. They, uh, the berberine group was, they, they showed that they had a reduction in 25.6 milligrams per deciliter in their blood sugar. So that would take me from my 90 down to, uh, 65. And that's crazy. Like that's a huge swing in this, like 25, um, milligrams per deciliter is a, is a, a significant amount, relatively small, uh, sample here. They were told not to change their diet or exercise. Maybe some people did, right? As the problem with these nutrition, uh, studies is that like, you can't really control everything that everybody's doing the entire time. So like maybe someone just like, maybe like half of the group, the berberine group, started running more or whatever they did, or they started, or they started intermittent fasting, whatever they did, but it's, it's like a big enough. It's, it's significant enough not to ignore that berberine could help with this. So that is something that blokes at me. So I'm going to, um, supplement with that as well and see how that goes. It's all natural. There's not really like a, there's no, it's not, 
like that's a supplement that nothing nothing wrong will happen because of it. So we're going to try it. So again, overall, that's something that that it's it's nice to know that this is something that it is that my diet and my lifestyle is affecting these blood markers in what could potentially be looked at as a negative way. We're not balancing wellness here. I'm not balancing wellness here. I'm chasing fitness. I'm chasing performance. And that's something that I have, again, I've made that decision and that's what I'm going to do, but it's good to know if, if you're, if you're kind of more like, Hey, yeah, like I'm here to push myself really hard in, in high rocks in DecaFit, and I want to get the best possible, right? but really it's trying to be healthy as well. <laughs> so if you want, if you want to slide that line closer to the wellness, I'm like I, you probably should. And these are just some some things just to consider. It's not necessarily going to help or hurt your performance. It might help your um, just energy levels during the day, uh, and you know, just keep you from not needing to reverse things too too greatly down the road. So I appreciate it. a lot of people kind of reached out asking about this, um, thinking about what thinking about what that means for for you, and then some people reached out and gave me a, some advice as well. So I appreciate that. So I did want to just address that pretty pretty quick in terms of like what this means, what this kind of looks like. Um, cool. Let's move along. Now we're going to talk about heart rate training and like racing for high rocks. So in general, heart rate is going to be probably the main, not probably, is the most easy to access and understand metric when it comes to endurance training and racing it is it's been like shown it's been studied people use it it, it works and it's it's just there for you um and just with the technology now that there's going to be you're going to see heart rate even if you, like, you don't really care to to train with it i use heart rate as a piece of the puzzle and figuring out like how my heart rate relates to my pace, how that relates to my rate of perceived exertion. So it's like three different pieces that all kind of work in tandem and I won't lean on one necessarily more than the other. And heart rate is probably the piece that I will lean on uh, maybe second, maybe pace is last <laughs> and then heart rate second and then RPE is always gonna be first for, for me in this um, endeavor of hybrid racing because the the variables are so great and things change so much that trying to rely on pace or heart rate is not going to be accurate for your performance and for your training so that's the main thing to keep in mind here and and there are there's two different ways to kind of use your heart rate data and what you're following, which we, which we'll talk about, that's like your your percentage of your max, which is pretty readily available. Most of your watches are going to be based off that, or it will be your functional threshold heart rate. Both of which we'll talk about how to test for these and figure out where your zones really should be. So again, your heart rate, and your heart rate, and the heart rate training most of the information available from it is from like steady state, single modality training, even something like triathlon, right? Where it's three different modalities, but it's like you swim and then you bike and then you run. It's like you're doing 
that thing. Well, we're doing a bunch of different things. We're doing eight to 10 to 12 different modalities within one event. And one thing that you must understand about heart rate is it's going to change based off of the modality that you're doing. It is not like your max heart rate for running, for rowing, and for skiing. They're all going to show up different. Like you're not going to be able to access the same type of output on the row or the ski and like your functional threshold heart rate is going to be different on all of these things. So trying to use your heart rate as you are running and then coming into the sled, it's just going to undulate so crazy that it's going to be hard to be like, I need to stick it right at 80% of my heart rate max. And that's where I can maintain where like sled push, for example, you may push that sled and you may create so much muscular damage and, and have not necessarily be ready for the, the demands of that sled. But during it, your heart rate might drop because of the rate in which you're moving is so much slower, right? You can only move it so fast. You're exerting probably more than what you were exerted on your run. Definitely more, I would say, but the rate in which you're moving is slower. So your heart rate is probably going to drop. And then when you get back onto the course, your body's going to send signals to that damaged area, trying to get more oxygen rich blood there. So your heart rate is going to go up like right after. So it could spike directly after something like sled push, sled pull, um, in, and DECA, the assault bike in particular, it does that like crazy. So like th those are areas where you can't really sit there and be like, all right, at the sled push, I need my heart rate to kind of stay at this low end zone three. Cause that's where I want to be the entire race. So it doesn't really work that way. And for, for things like the slower pieces, um, the sled push, sled pull in particular, maybe even the lunges, I wouldn't really lean on heart rate too, too much there because it's not going to, it's not going to even out. For the most part, what I found in terms of the running side of things, that a low end, a low end at zone three is probably where you're going to want to be. The high end zone three is what you can hold, and this is kind of like your. This would be like your functional threshold heart rate, like just pinning it at high end zone three. That's something you can usually hold for about an hour, but because the exertions are so high here, and you might be like going down to two, up into four, down down again into low end three, up into four or five, that I would recommend spending most of your specific training at that low end zone three when it comes to running or when it comes to like longer high rocks specific type workouts. If you punch it too high, um, it might have a hard time coming back down into a spot where that is sustainable during your run. And then you're going to be crossing that line into uh, that anaerobic state way too early. You want to reserve that for that back third of the race so you want to give yourself room to spike and then come back down. So if staying at kind of like that low end zone three, even if you spike into high end zone three or low end zone four, you'll have a little bit more room to drop back down into zone three during the runs. So that's where I would kind of recommend this. And it's not, there's still a lot we need to learn about the heart rate on in high rocks or DECA just because there isn't going to be a straight answer how there is in triathlon or running or, or whatever else, um, cycling, swimming, 
rowing, skiing, whatever it is, like where it's a single modality and you can kind of figure out what's 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 going to punch your heart rate up or down and based off your RPE and just on your regular effort. So in general, I would use heart rate as a uh, as a piece of the puzzle, like I mentioned before, against your rate of perceived exertion. So if you wanted to really be locked in on this, you can test your heart rate on each of the zones. Um, specifically where you would, where I would recommend doing it is the row ski run and kind of different tests for, for th those particular stations, because you're going to spend more time training there. A lot of the other training, if it was sleds, lunges, wall balls, this is muscular endurance training. That's not necessarily going to take your, um, your heart rate to a certain place. And it's going not necessarily going to develop fitness there. You need to, specifically tax the muscles uh, from an endurance from like a high rep standpoint so that you will create some resilience in those muscles and you come back stronger so you can do a little bit more later it's more typical like progressive overload so that you're not taking on as much muscle damage and if you're not taking on as much muscle damage your heart rate won't really go up as high because you're not going to need to send the, the signal's not going to get sent to send more blood to those areas if they're not damaged as much so i wouldn't necessarily worry about heart rate on the muscular endurance stations, but the single domain ski run row, uh, salt bike, if you will, then it, it's good to kind of have an idea, but they're not, but again, they're not going to be apples to apples. Your run row and ski are going to be different. So how do you, how do you find these zones? First, you need reliable hardware. That is the, one of the main things, especially in this, in, 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 in this, um, field of athletics, you're going to want something that's more reliable than the wrist-based heart rate that you have from your watch. They're going to be fine for uh, running, um, and maybe that's it. Maybe cycling. Cycling is probably the best one because you're, you're not your arms aren't moving. With running, sometimes the wrist-based ones, it can pick up the cadence of your run if it's not on there uh, appropriately. So I would... If you don't want to get an extra strap on your chest or your arm, I would not. And you want to, and you're looking just for the wrist-based one that your watch has. I wouldn't go on heart rate at all. <laughs> I just wouldn't do it. It works for zone two runs, and then out maybe sometimes, and then out, outside of that, it just doesn't really work at all. It, especially on the ski erg and the row, it's just off. Like it's way too low on the row, and it's way too high on the ski erg. So it just like doesn't work. So if you're not willing to get some reliable hardware out extra hardware outside of your watch, then mm, I don't know if it's really going to be worth the time to, to consider this. It, 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 sometimes it can be fairly consistent, which is nice to see. And you can have a run in the next one. Like it will be, and you can kind of go off the consistency of it, but like the accuracy is probably not, not quite there. Um, another thing that I, I've, I've seen, I'm starting to see quite a bit with athletes in this space and also athletes kind of in the CrossFit space is, the calibration of their heart rate is not quite there. And you'll see there's like, oh, I spent, I spent 40 minutes in zone four. And it's like proper zone four, like by definition is probably only going to be about 20 minutes of work. And maybe this is going to change because of, maybe we can spend more time there because of the nature of these races where it, it, when we're in zone four, the accumulation of that, over the course of the hour, maybe it can be longer than 20 minutes because we're 
going some four, then we can drop back down to low three or high two or or just regular three, and then you can spike back up. But the consistency, like you're not holding it for if you're, it says you're holding it for like 30 minutes in a row, like you're not. <laughs> like you just buy, like it's going to be very very challenging to do that. Zone five as well. It's something you can hold for about five minutes. That's where you're just in a complete, like. Like there's no oxygen reaching your mus- musculature. Um, so because you're going so hard, so everything's being forced to con- convert things, convert your pyruvate into lactate and then the acidosis would be too high and you will have to slow down. You can't just be like, going to go harder. <laughs> you can't do that in zone five and at high end zone four. Like you're going to slow down. Mind over matter to a certain point, but not when it comes to these specific metrics. So if that's off, like you should definitely do some testing. Um, in this space, and again, I'm not, I can't say for sure because it's not steady state and the spikes in the overall time might be more than what the literature and what the evidence shows in the past, but you should still just test. So a couple ways to test this, to set your zones within your hardware pieces, your watch, uh, your whoop, whatever it is. You can do, well, I like two different tests here. One is the if we're testing just the max heart rate, uh, we can do just kind of like a ramp test here. This is like, Easy warm up and then, every, and then twenty minutes or so. It's like a twenty minute time trial. Every five minutes, increasing your output and then finishing as hard as you possibly can. That's one way to kind of get your heart rate as high as possible. Um, also, at the end of like a five k, uh, there's a, a test that is like an old school track field test, which is like run eight hundred as hard as you can, rest for like thirty seconds, then run eight hundred as hard as you can. And one thing to keep in mind when you're doing these tests, we're not worried about dying here literally dying. Yes. We're worried about that. But like in terms of the workout, we, it's not about finishing the workout at a specific time or pace, which are so used to doing is like kind of riding that line and wanting to finish out the workout. You're chasing a feeling you're chasing a byproduct. You want your heart rate just to get as high as possible. So you may need to push it a little bit further. So if it's like a 20 minute ramp test and like the last five minutes, you can only do two and a half. And like, then like you're, you've exploded. Good. That's what we're trying to do. Then you can go back and look and see how high it got. You probably won't get it completely to your max. So you can add like two to four beats per minute on that to set your mark, set your, uh, set your, your zones for your max heart rate. The other test you can do is for your functional threshold heart rate, where we can try to find where that threshold heart rate is. Um, the most reliable seems to be about a 30 minute time trial where you take the average of your heart rate in the back 20 minutes. So you can do this by starting this 30 minute time trial, hitting your lap at 10 minutes, and then just t- analyzing the data after and taking an average of that. But it, uh, your heart rate will certainly drift as it continues to go through this 30 minutes, but you want to take the average of that. And it's probably going to be about where your threshold heart rate is going to be. So I would test both of those things and you could test both of those things on the rower and the ski. If you really want to be locked in to what it, it to where you should be and where you want to be. I would, I would test that. Um, other than that, I would just use it as a way to understand where you are in the race, understand where your heart rate should be typically in a race, understand what you know you can hold for a long time. That's basically how I do it. I'll be like, I'm at one, whatever one, my heart rate's low. I have a big, I think I have a larger heart. So my beat, my heart beats less to get the amount of blood that it needs to go to. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not in a good or bad thing because it gets to a certain point. And it's, it runs about 20 minutes lower, 20 beats per minute, not 20 minutes, 20 beats per minute lower than the average person, I would say. So when I get into like 145, 
that's like hard for me. I'm like, okay, this is where I can hold this for the duration of this race. Once it starts to get tip past like 151, it's like now I'm in, now I'm there. Now I'm like, I better be almost done or, or willing to really, really suffer. Um, and even if that's the case, which I hope to be willing to do that, but it still might just not work. It might just completely pop. And there gets to a point where things will kind of shoot up. And once it shoots up, then you're just going to have to slow down. So riding that line, making sure that you're staying under that area where you're going to pop things up even further. So that is then going to make you slow down. Very important to kind of know those things. Um, as long as you have accurate hardware and you've been watching the numbers in a reliable fashion. So you do understand how that's going to change within the event itself and where in the event it should be going up or down. All right. So that's, that's, that's heart rate for high rocks. There's a lot that uh, this is going to certainly evolve as we become more aware of, of what these demands are going to do, where it should be and, and how it, to kind of hold it. I, one day, maybe it'll even be optimal where it's like, you should be at this percentage at this point of the race. You should be at this percentage, this point of the race. It's also going to depend on the type of athlete you are. If you are a strength athlete, um, you might be able to press the runs a little bit higher and then you come into the stations and things kind of drop for me. It's kind of on the opposite. Like I need to kind of pull my runs back to stay under a little bit. So that when I come into the stations, when it's going to jump up, I can then have some space there to keep me in a place where I know I can maintain control, but maybe down the road, we'll have a little bit more uh, of a good idea of where to be and when to do it. Awesome. Thanks for checking out the podcast. If this was helpful, you can share it with some friends. That'd be super helpful for us. Give us a review. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, um, what you don't like. You might just want to send that in, in some sort of DM fashion on Instagram, rmr.training. Just to let us know. You don't need to put that up on iTunes. We don't need to see all that up there. It's up there for forever. If you have some critical feedback, we'll change. If it's good, if it's good feedback, if not, we, we probably won't. Check us out out in Vienna. Give some uh, shout outs to the squad, Ryan and Meg. We're going to be out there. If you're in Vienna, come say hello um, and kick some butt at that race, the European Open Championship, the men's race and women's race, the Elite 15 is going to be on Friday, uh, which I kind of like. Um, and it will be Friday evening, uh, Vienna time. So it's like, I think men are going off like 8.30, women at like 7.30, <laughs> right? Like, so... Um, Work backwards should be available for you to watch some fun hybrid sports during your Friday afternoon and evening. Make sure you're checking out the RMR training app. We are adjusting some things on there on our RMR daily programming. That's going to give you a bit more of a, a ramp up, kind of like a orientation for like three or four weeks that help you understand where you're going to be and where you should be. And also a place to kind of come back to in between and different events. Like the biggest issue we found is making these programs. We don't have a, um, once you do the program, it's like, what do I do next? So we have daily programming and this daily programming is going to have this kind of ramp up week, which is going to help you kind of uh, get back into the swing of things, help build up like your resiliency in terms of your muscular endurance and your aerobic capacity. And then you can pick some different directions to go in. We have some really cool workouts coming from Meg Jacoby in the next couple of weeks here on the RMR training app. We have our running for high rocks, which is 12 weeks, uh, four running, four runs per week. 
that's included in the app, or you can buy that on its own if you're not interested in the app reoccurring subscription. We have camps. Camps will be out. A couple of spots already taken up. We have a bunch of people returning from camp um, because it is such a fun, awesome time. But that will be live for the public on Tuesday. So be on the lookout for that. Check us out over at rmr.training on Instagram where we have some cool tips. And uh, just follow us on our on our, our journeys as athletes and coaches. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. We will talk to you soon.